And what is going on, everybody? And welcome back to episode 157 of the Designated Players Podcast. We're back with MLS History Retold, and we've got two awesome stories for you. First, for our fans in Chicago and in Dallas, we're diving into the best and brightest from the Brimstone Cup, which is the first ever fan-created MLS trophy between two teams. That will be followed by one of the most legendary stories in U.S. men's national team history, the 2002 World Cup photo shoot, and that Landon Donovan water fountain photo. My name's Andrew. I'm joined by my good buddy Connor, and this is MLS History Retold. What's going on? How you doing, man? You all right? Um, I, I've started the clock. We are on the clock if we're going to try to fit this within our budget and timing. Uh, we're going to have to we're going to have to push this one. So we'll just jump right into it. No small talk. Connor, what scarf are you rocking this week? Well, uh, in honor of the man who is most famous for this photo shoot, um, I do not have an L.A. Galaxy scarf, unfortunately, but I will go with his other team. The Quakes. I thought his other team was Mexico. Oh, nice. That's a good reference. <laughs> I have I have my moment. So we just mentioned that we have two teams, uh, the Chicago Fire and the Dallas Burn. So I've got my pride. Man, I wonder where I've seen that scarf before. We love it. We love it. Let's just jump right into it then. I'm excited to tell this story. Uh, I love fan-created stuff. You know, you've got Atlantic Cup, Cascadia Cup. This is the one of one of the few things in this league that doesn't feel forced and like fabricated. This is one of the things that just feels real to me. Uh, the fans drive the competition. This isn't the league being like, yo, supporters groups, get together and go make a go make a tournament or a cup and and play for it and, and hype it up. Right. This isn't league driven. This is fan driven. And that's what creates authenticity. So I'm really excited to break this one down. So when I get into this, I'm going to go over how it started. Uh, I'm going to go over the biggest games that I found. I'm really going to focus on the 2001, the very start of the cup, because uh, I have a feeling we'll talk about a couple of other games throughout the year. And then I'm also going to go into just kind of where we're at right now. Sound good? Let's get into it. So for those of you, like I mentioned, who don't know, this cup is played between FC Dallas and Chicago Fire every year during the regular season, playoffs, and U.S. Open Cup. Very simply, the team that accumulates the most points versus the other over the course of the year wins the cup. The supporters group from each team decided that there needed to be a competition between the two flame-themed sides in MLS, the Chicago Fire and then the then-named Dallas Burn. After some memorable games in 1998-2000, the 2001 season was the first season to officially have this cup played for, named the Brimstone Cup. The Brimstone Cup is named after or in relation to a quote from the Latin poem, Aeneid. Get me on my pronunciation, please. The quote reads, The more kindled combat rises higher, the more with fury burns the blazing fire. A very flame-themed rivalry this is, and I love it. I think it's great. Uh, The physical cup, last fun fact here, um, was actually crafted by the same company that makes the Academy Award. Pretty neat. The background's cool, but the games between these are even cool. So in the previous episode, we talked about the 1998 double season for the Chicago Fire, and we talked about the U.S. Open Cup semifinal that saw 45 fouls and three red cards. This was one of the first games that really got the rivalry going, along with a 3-2 
Dallas Burn victory in 1998, which broke Chicago Fire's run of four straight victories thanks to a literal last-second buzzer-beater goal from Zarco Rodriguez. As we know, back in 99 and 98, the clock counted down. So um, I'm going to focus more on games that happened with the cup on the line. So games that happened in 98, 99, and 2000, I'm not going to include, but there were some bangers in there. We might go back and talk about them later. But the 2001 season when this cup was created is the first one that absolutely went off. The teams met six times over the regular season and playoffs. Four of them went into extra time. We'll start with the first game where current Atlanta sporting director, Carlos Bocanegra, gave Chicago the lead in the 42nd minute. The game would remain pretty dull from this point on until the 81st minute, first minute when things would really kick off. Starting with Jamar Beasley. Yes, the brother of newly inducted member of the U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame, Demarcus Beasley. Jamar Beasley uh, scored a goal to give Chicago a 2-0 lead in the 81st minute. However, just a minute later, the late Bobby Ryan scored his second goal of the season to cut the lead to one. Then in the 90th minute of the game, everybody's favorite former U.S. Olympic team manager, Jason Christ, scored in the 90th minute to get the game into overtime. Six minutes into that period, Ariel Graziani scored off of a Bobby Ryan assist to give Dallas all three points in the first iteration of the Brimstone Cup. 13 weeks later, the fire would go again against the Dallas Burn, and they would get their revenge. Graziani would start by getting the burn on the board in the first 11 minutes, and things would be once again pretty dull until late in the second half, the 77th minute, current FIFA Ultimate Team icon, Christo Stoikov, stepped up for the Chicago Fire and slotted home a penalty. The game also would remain time and head to extra time for the second time in this season, where everybody's favorite, almost president of the United States Soccer Federation, Eric Winalda, would score his seventh goal of the season, assisted by Stoikov, to draw the series level at three points apiece. We move on to the third game, which is another one that went from zero to 100 really, really quick. Nothing happens until about the 68th minute when Diego Gutierrez scores his first goal of the season. In the 81st minute, Piotr Novak gave Chicago a 2-0 lead, but Dallas would not lay down. Bobby Ryan and Ariel Graziani again would combine to score two goals in the 86th and the 90th minute, respectfully, respectively, excuse me, to get the game into extra time. No goals would be scored in that time, and the Brimstone Cup would be decided by the MLS Cup playoffs. Chicago and Dallas would face off in a first-to-six-point, three-legged playoff series for the first time since the insane 1999 season, where an 86th-minute Graziani goal would complete a three-goal comeback to knock Chicago out of the playoffs in the third and final game. But that was then, and this is now. Game one was of this playoff series in 2001 was low on goals, but high on adrenaline. Carlos Bocanegra would score in the 40th minute, and the tr- teams would trade 10 total yellow cards over the next 60 minutes until the 98th minute when Richard Farrer was sent off for a serious foul and Evan Whitfield would score a crucial second goal to ensure three points in both the playoff series and the Brimstone Cup and take them back to Chicago. Game two, a little bit more reserved, seeing Chad Deering score in the 24th minute only for Jamar Beasley to tuck away a leveler in the 84th. The game only saw five cards, much more boring. Uh, It did go to extra time, but it ended level. This kept the Burns hope alive, not only for advancement into the next round, but also for the Brimstone Cup. 
which meant that the final game in this series had everything to play for. And these players knew it. Dima Kovalenko scored for the Chicago Fire in the 17th minute, followed by a 55th minute goal from everyone's favorite former and maybe future RBNY manager, Chris Armas. Then it all kicked off. Nine yellow cards in this one and a straight red to current Orlando City manager, Oscar Pereja, for a serious foul. I'm led to believe that this foul was on C.J. Brown because only a few minutes later, C.J. Brown was in, was listed as injured and had to be removed from the game for current Philadelphia manager, Jim Curtin. As you can remember, we talked about the 2000 or, or the 1999-2000-2001 Chicago team of having a ton of former managers. This red card did Dallas in, and the Chicago Fire would win the game, move on in the playoffs, and most importantly, win their first ever Brimstone Cup. Now, there are tons of games in this rivalry that, like I mentioned, we will likely touch on throughout the rest of our, our series here. Um, but what I, what's important to note is that as the league continues to expand, the games become less and less meaningful, meaningful for the players. It used to be a, a series that the teams played five or six times a season because they were in the same conference, the same division. They used to play against each other all the time. Now we're lucky to even get one matchup a year. In fact, in 2023, this season, there is no game to be played between FC Dallas and the Chicago Fire. Matt Hedges was quoted as saying that this game meant a little bit less to them in 2015-2016, not because of the Brimstone Cup being less meaningful, but because other games started to mean more to Dallas, like the Houston uh, rivalry at that time. However, the spark was reignited a bit in 2016 after Dallas did their double because it was the first time Dallas had won the Brimstone Cup in five years straight. It had been Chicago, 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 Chicago. It also meant more because this is the first time that new Dallas supporters group, the Dallas Beer Guardians, had gotten their hands on the cup. This cup was a bit different, though, because over the last four years, Dallas hadn't seen it. And when they finally got their hands on the cup, they recognized something. It was dented. It was beat up. It was broken. The story goes that the Chicago Fire supporters group took it onto their capo stand where the, they lead all the chants and just straight dropped it straight on the ground, put a giant dent in this brimstone cup and just never fixed it, just left it like that. So people look at it and they know that it, it means something. It's still a, a, a very meaningful part of this, this rivalry. And this, when, they, when they looked at the, the, the cup and the way it was treated by this team who had won it four times in a row, that it didn't even mean anything to them because they had won it so many times. It was like, oh, whatever. That got people fired up. For a little bit, this rivalry came back and, and really meant something to players. However, with COVID uh, and the scheduling that has happened over the last couple of years, there's only been one game between the two in the last four years, meaning that hype once again has died down and the, the Brimstone Cup to players does not mean as much um, as it used to. However... The fans still love it. The fans know what it means. The fans understand the importance of the cup, uh, and they will continue to make sure that they, the teams know how much it matters to them so that they can fight. To wrap up, a little history on the cup as a whole. The leading goal scorers are Ante Razov with 11, Kenny Cooper with 8, Ariel Graziani with 8, Jason Christ with 7, and Josh Wolf with 6. Dallas currently leads the head-to-head matchup with 24 wins to Chicago's 22s, uh, and they have drawn six times. Chicago has scored 97 goals, while Dallas has scored 96. Chicago Fire have six Brimstone Cups since 2001, or if you go back to when the start of the league happened, it is nine. 
FC Dallas hold the record with 12. To say this is anything but a highly contested rivalry is silly. These guys, while they don't play a ton, still know how to get after it. Since the beginning of the year, this has been one of the most highly contested contests in the league. And it's important that we talk about it for the history of this league because of how important it was to show real authentic games being supported by supporter sections of this group. So while we might not have a ton of rivalry going into this for the future, the past rivalry of this is important to remember for years. on. You want to hear about some more icons of the game? I would love to. Some of them, some of them heavily involved with water fountains. I don't know. <laughs> um, so I'm here to talk about the famous U.S. men's national team water fountain shoe. So my source for this one, I definitely want to give credit here because I got like all my notes from this story um, is an article called the story behind the most famous photo shoot in American soccer history uh, by Pablo Morar, uh, a.k.a. MLSist on Twitter. Uh, articles on The Athletic. I highly, highly, highly recommend you go take a look at the article. Uh, I don't think I included everything from the article, but I did take a lot from here. Um, and it was it was a fantastic read. Again, highly recommend go checking it out. Uh, but now on to the photo shoot itself. So the famous USMNT water fountain shoot, it tick, uh, took place at Wake Med Soccer Park, uh, previously known as SAS Soccer Park when the shoot was happening. And it is in Cary, North Carolina. The shoot took place in spring of 2002 um, and was done by the New York Times Magazine as they wanted to do a photo shoot for the U.S. men's national team players ahead of the 2002 World Cup upcoming in the summer. So the article of the Times piece that they were taking this photo shoot for is called The Boys of Soccer Meet Seven Hot Shots on the U.S. World Cup Team. The photographer for the shoot was uh, Matthias Vrins McGrath, who was a creative director at Giorgio Armani and also moved up the uh, moved to the upper ranks of Gucci. So very well-known, uh, high-quality photographer. Now, why would the U.S. Soccer Federation want the USMNT to be involved in this piece with the New York Times? Well, as Pablo states, coming off the national team's miserable 1998 World Cup, the USSF was eager to introduce the men's team to a broader, more receptive audience. U.S. soccer press officer Michael Kammerman Kam uh, said, we at, the time, we at that time were just trying to not only get eyes in the soccer media, but also just get into the mainstream. So the opportunity to be part of it was a no-brainer. And so let's get into the pictures themselves. And so I'm going to go in order of how Pablo described um, them coming to the photo shoot. And as I talk about each person, I'm going to share the photo itself as I talk about it. So hopefully you should be able to see my screen. First up, as I'm sure you could tell, Casey Keller. Uh, there's a hilarious quote from Casey uh, in which he walks into the locker room and notices all of the clothes that are very unusual for what he's used to. Uh, in part of his reaction, he stated that as I was looking at all of this stuff and going, this stuff isn't really my style. Uh, but secondly, these were all model sizes. I'm not fitting into a lot of medium or large. My legs and my ass just were not going to work with what they had. Uh, so he put on the Calvin Klein undershirt, as you can see in this photo, 
as this was the only thing that fit him. Uh, Casey seemed to be pretty happy. Uh, this was all that he could fit into. Uh, as he stated, I should give praise to all my plyometrics over the years that made my ass so big that I couldn't fit into those sample sizes. I could have been in some sort of skin tight, snake skin, something or other. Vreens McGrath, the photographer, was not a big fan of his photo. Uh, he actually called it his least favorite photo as he felt it was boring, uh, to which I have to say I wholly agree compared to the, the photos that are coming up. So next was actually someone's whose photo never got released. Next was Brad Friedel. So since it was not released, I don't have a picture here to show for you. Uh, but Brad's photo, again, was the only one that did not appear in the article. So all we have to go off of here are the words of Pablo, who apparently has a copy of the photo. Uh, Pablo describes it as Brad barefoot squatting down below a goal in training gear, his arms outstretched. Um, I believe he also, Pablo also said that he had to wear, I think, the same thing that Casey wore, because again, that was the only thing that could fit him. Uh, based on the conversation Pablo had with Brad, I think he's pretty grateful that the photo was never released. Uh, although I, for one, would love to see it. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. So next up was DeMarcus Beasley. Not a ton to say on DeMarcus's photo. Uh, it was pretty normal, but DeMarcus seemed to actually enjoy the, his photo, uh, likely more than the rest. DeMarcus actually stated, I mean, I could tell you that my photo isn't as bad as everybody else's. Mine was halfway decent. That's just an epic photo shoot. At the time, none of us thought the photos would be like that. I remember personally, I had some funny clothes set up for me. They wanted me to wear pink pants for my photo, like bright, bright pink. Thankfully, when I saw mine at the end of the day, I thought it wasn't that bad, and I still don't. Next up, the most famous picture of them all, Landon Donovan. So with Landon, uh, Vreens McGrath was able to get a bit more out of the shoot than some of Landon's teammates, and I'm sure you'll see that in the photos themselves. He said that Landon was more eager, energetic, and more willing to try things, hence where the water fountain comes in. Uh, unfortunately, Landon declined to comment uh, on Pablo's article, so nothing from him on what he thought. However, this did become uh, a massively vital part of USMNT fan culture and still even is today. So little did Landon and Vreens McGrath know that they were going to be changing USMNT lore forever. Um, unfortunately, not much else on this photo right now. So we will move on to the next one, who is Brian McBride. So according to Vreens McGrath, uh, this is one of his favorite photos. However, he really had to guide him into the pose that we all know that we all know so well. Um, honestly, not much else to say on this one. Uh, McBride, again, didn't respond to Pablo. So unfortunately, can't get his thoughts on this photo. But next up, Kobe Jones. So Kobe said that when it came to the photo shoot, they were all sent separately, one at a time. So nobody had any idea what the other guys were doing and no idea what they were get, about to get into. Uh, the Kobe photo was actually rejected at first, uh, and they ha it had to be cropped before it was included. Uh, they ended up cropping out a bit of the bottom of the photo, which removed part of his legs uh, and apparently his bare feet. If you want to see the uncropped photo, go check out Pablo's article. I believe there is an uncropped photo of it in there. So only two left. Next up, Clint Mathis or Cletus. People may not remember, but Clint was actually a very big deal prior to the 2002 World Cup. Uh, 
uh, before the shoot, uh, before the shoot had started, Clint had actually been in Europe talking with Bayern Munich representatives. Nothing too crazy about Clint's photo. Uh, and he was quoted as thinking that he actually did a pretty okay job with the shoot. Uh, he actually also had a separate shoot that was included in the New York Times magazine, also shot by Vrins McGrath, in which he was more bearskin, uh, and the photos were in black and white. Uh, again, if you want to see those photos, Pablo has it in his article. Go check it out. Vrins McGrath is quoted as saying that Clint was getting a bit more reserved on him when it came to that separate photo shoot, uh, but that he actually got one of his favorite pictures out of it. And finally, to wrap things up, Pablo Mascherini. Mascherini made, uh, had made the World Cup roster without having actually played a single qualifier. So him being here almost never happened. He went to the shoot with a couple uh, of the more veteran guys on the team and was quoted saying, if those guys are doing it, I'm doing it. To which I say, thank goodness, because otherwise we wouldn't have this amazing photo. Uh, Mascherini was quoted as saying, uh, the following as it relates to the choice of the outfit. At the time, I was 25 and I was willing to be daring in clothes. Uh, in the clothes that I wear, uh, my hairstyles, I was willing to try all kinds of different things. There is no way you'd find me in those pants today, nor doing that photo shoot. But back then, going through what we were going through and my age, in the experience in its totality, it was a really interesting experience. Uh, and one of my favorite quotes from the whole shoot was one from from Pablo Mastroeni, in which he said, I was really happy to be there. I was just taking in the whole experience both on and off the field. I felt like a guinea pig, you know? I was just like, whatever you guys need, this is a big deal. To which I absolutely love that quote. He's just, go with the flow, do what he needs to do for the U.S. And I, I honestly, just reading a, everything that Pablo was saying about this whole shoot made me like a really big fan of his. He just seemed like such a great guy. So a little bit more notes outside of the pictures themselves. The team seems to have liked Pablo Mascherini's photo the most, uh, despite the Donovan picture being the more viral, well-known one. Um, and you might be asking yourself, what did head coach Bruce Arena think about all of this? Well, Bruce said, I remember how ridiculous they looked. We were all just saying, why the hell would you even agree to do that? It was pretty stupid, yeah. <laughs> I honestly wouldn't expect anything else from Bruce Arena. Cameraman stated that the first time the whole team heard about the shoot was early morning while in a hotel in South Korea for the World Cup. He remembers hearing laugh, uh, laughter hollering in the hallway as teammates began to see the results of the photos from the shoot. Tony Miola was quoted as saying, doesn't he look pretty while holding up a photo of Casey Keller? As the photos came out, they were all trying to figure out who looked the worst. Uh, apparently, this whole time, Bruce was just walking around confused with a hand on his head. According to Brad Friedel, the ones who got it the worst were Landon and DeMarcus, mainly because they were the young guys on the team. Also, if you don't know, there are a plethora of outtakes of the same guys, uh, similar in pose and nature to the extra Clint photo I mentioned earlier before. Uh, again, if you want to see those photos, check out the article by Pablo. Uh, another one of my favorite quotes comes from Casey Keller off the back of Bruce asking, how did you guys not just say no? Casey responded by saying, I think some of it was that there was just this, maybe this idea that we needed to do our part just 
uh, to just help promote the game and the team. It wasn't in our DNA to say no to something like this, if I'm being honest. In the years since the shoot, cameraman um, has made it a priority to oversee all of the USMNT photo shoots. He was not going to let this something like this happen again. Uh, he also said that Landon wouldn't actually talk to him for a couple of days after the photos were released. Safe to say he was not a big fan of them. However, despite all of the ridicule and the crap that the players and the team got over this photo shoot at the time, it did seem to have an effect on galvanizing the team and helping them be more of a, a single unit and play for one another. Mastroini was quoted as saying, I think we were comfortable with ourselves and that team in particular was a team that really checked their egos at the door and we were willing to work hard for each other and represent the country the best way we could. And so I think that the shoot was a reflection of that. We were all in the same boat. We all had pictures in there and regardless of what the people on the outside were saying, we felt comfortable and in a lot of ways it did bring us together. To, cor- to commemorate the whole thing, uh, Pablo Moror returned to the exact water fountain in North Carolina and placed a golden plaque on the fountain that's in the Landon Donovan picture, which read, In the summer of 2002, at this very site, the greatest goal scorer in history of U.S. men's national team had a drink of water. Sadly, the fountain and the plaque were replaced with a new upgraded fountain. However, the fountain with the plaque still attached to it was brought to the National Soccer Hall of Fame, where they're hoping that they can one day get it up and running again for people to even use. As many probably know, the USMNT would go on to lose in the quarterfinals to Germany in the 2002 World Cup, of course, after beating Mexico in the round of 16. And that is the story of the USMNT water fountain shoot. I have so many things. (laughs) I can only imagine. I'm sure everybody has so many questions after all that. (laughs) First off, I want a petition for Pablo to release the Brad Friedel photo. Yes. Uh, I will get it signed by as many people as I need to, but it needs to, it ne- I need to see it. Uh, secondly, Bruce Arena looking at something with a little bit of expression and absolutely hating it is so on par. It's ridiculous. Oh, How yeah. dare you try doing anything other than 442 with Bobby Wood and Josie Altador up top? Disgusting. Omar Gonzalez at the back. <laughs> um, that that water fountain needs to be not only put in the National Soccer Hall of Fame, but it needs to be enshrined in a museum. I, I got. I'm going to listen to this like four times and just text you with <laughs> more and more and more that I see. But goodness me, what and what an absolute burner of a story! I love that so much. That's that's the best story of the of the series so far. Hundred percent. One hundred percent. It's so unique. It's so different. It, it's very good. Yeah, and 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 again, things that you don't know about until you talk about it. So we hope everybody enjoyed. We hope everybody enjoyed the uh, the the water fountain story, a little bit of the history of of the Brimstone Cup. We hope you enjoyed it all. If you did, make sure you leave a like, comment, subscribe, all that good stuff. Uh, if you listen to this and you want to see the video, the photos that Connor was talking about, they will be up on YouTube. So go ahead and check that out. Um. And while you're there, why don't you go ahead and subscribe to us and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast, you know, when it goes live and make sure you subscribe to us on all forms of social media as well. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. So um, that way, whenever we post clips, you can watch them back, comment and laugh with us. We appreciate you guys listening. We hope you enjoyed and we will see you next time on the next episode of the Designated Players Podcast.
See ya.